know, Christmas is a, as I said earlier, a wonderful time to be a Christian. Because we sing and we celebrate. It's a time of joy and of gifts and of family and friends, of making memories. And for this reason, Christmas is also a very difficult time for many people because of, of loss or separation of heartache and hurt. As most people, not just Christians, but even in the world, are celebrating this time with their families. And it makes those who have holes in their family more aware of it. Those around us are happy while many of us are hurting. Those around us are making memories where many of us are reminded of our previous experiences. We have our own memories that won't be repeated again because of death and separation and even estrangement in families. And so for this reason, Christmas exasperates the difficulty and can give a sense of exasperated loss. This is why I want to turn this morning to James 5, verses 10 and 11. This is a passage about dealing with suffering, about the normalcy of suffering, the idea that when you experience suffering, as Peter says, you ought not act surprised as if anything unusual is happening to you, but you understand that because we live in a fallen world, suffering is a normal human experience. There is loss, there is sin that reigns, and though the wrong off seems so strong, we know that God remains the ruler here in this world, and so we're aware of that as we look at our own suffering. Look at James 5, verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Let me give you an outline as we unpack these two verses this morning. I want to give you four prophetic responses to suffering. Four prophetic responses to suffering. This passage really has five commands in it. They can kind of collapse in these four statements here. Four ways that you can view or you can respond to your suffering, which as I mentioned earlier, can be exasperated and highlighted at Christmas, you can respond in line with how the prophets responded to their suffering. First, partner with the prophets. That's the interesting turn of phrase here in verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, take the prophets. Now, James has been focusing on human suffering and, and trials and temptations in life throughout this book. He began in chapter 1 by saying that trials and temptations come to you. Trials come from the Lord, temptations come from within. And James makes the point in chapter 1 that the difference between a trial and a temptation is not in the external circumstances, but in the internal response. So for example, the phone rings and it's the cancer diagnosis or it's news of an accident, a loved one who's died or, or whatever the bad news is. That's a trial sent to you from the Lord for your sanctification. And that's from him and it is for your good and for his glory, no matter what the trial However, if that same phone call happens or the same bad news arrives and you respond to it by questioning God or you respond to it by saying God is not sovereign over this, God is not in control of this, this is the kind of stuff that just happens and, but God, I really need wisdom to get through it, that's a, that becomes a temptation. That's not from God, that's from your own self and you won't receive wisdom for how to get through it because you're, you're doubting God's sovereignty, you're doubting his goodness, you're doubting his work. It doesn't make any sense to say, God, this isn't from you, but show me how I should react in light of it. I mean, if God's not sovereign over it, he can't help you through it. That kind of person is double-minded, unstable in all of their ways, unable to get the wisdom they ask for. That becomes a temptation, which comes from within, not from without. The person who says this, you know, who becomes, turns to self-pity, turns to a lack of faith, turns to doubt, 
and other sins, that's a temptation from within because they're not receiving what they desire. Now, this is normal living in a fallen world. People go through suffering. People go through trials. This is typical life in a fallen world, not just for Christians, but for non-Christians alike. Everybody has difficulty because sin reigns in this world. However, there's a special difficulty that Christians have in light of the ubiquity of human suffering. That special difficulty is we claim that God is sovereign. Beyond that, we often act in ways that increase our suffering, namely through evangelism and taking stands for the Lord. Not all human suffering is a direct result of your own actions or your own sin, but much of it is. Not all human suffering is a direct result of your actions in a good sense. Like it's not, it's not always a straight line between you shared the gospel at work and so you got fired for it. Sometimes it is that direct connection, but often there's more steps in the way. Often it's more confusing. Also, not always is a straight line between your own sin and your suffering. As in you turned to a life of thievery. You became a robber and now you're in jail. That's a pretty straight correlation between your own sin and your suffering. It's often not always that straightforward either. Instead, it's best to see that the human life is filled with difficulty and suffering that God is sovereign over. And as an example of that, James says in verse 10, take the prophets, <laughs> consider them. So you're going through a difficulty, you're going through suffering, you're experiencing loss, it's exasperated at Christmas time. What should you do in your mind? Consider the prophets and recognize that what you're going through in your life right now is the same thing that the prophets went through. You have to see this because when you're going through suffering, it's very difficult for you to take your eyes off of yourself. It's very difficult for you to see your connection with other, other people. You become inwardly focused. I mean, say you, I don't know, sprain your ankle. Somebody says, how are you doing? Oh, my ankle hurts. And you become, your life becomes, starts talking about your, your ankle. You hurt yourself and so you become focused on that. Somebody says, how are you doing? Oh, do I tell them about my ankle or not about my ankle? And you just become inwardly focused. It's very difficult to take your eyes off of yourself and put them on other people. And that becomes, or, uh, and that becomes the motivation here for sanctification. The first step towards you dealing with your own suffering is to take your eyes off of yourself and realize that what you're dealing with is not unique. That the prophets, for example, suffered as you suffered, often even more. And often with the prophets, there is more of a one-to-one -one correlation between their own speaking forward the word of God and their own suffering. You know, prophets in the Old Testament had two functions, foretelling and forthtelling. Foretelling was predicting the future. Forthtelling is saying, hey, repent or God's gonna judge you. 95% of prophets in the Old Testament, 95% of their content is in the forthtelling category. Very little of what the prophets actually say in the Bible is predictive. You know, is in such and such date, Cyrus will be the king and will rebuild the temple. Very little prophecy is like that. Very little is, you know, the Savior will be born in Bethlehem. Most prophecy in the Bible is, is forthtelling, is telling you, you better get right with the Lord because he's going to come judge you. And the prophets did that kind of speaking. That's what James means by they spoke in the name of the Lord there in verse 11, or verse 10. They spoke in the name of the Lord. They said, get right with God or he'll judge you. And that produced suffering in their life. Now again, James isn't saying that all of your suffering is because you're foretelling the word of God, nor is he saying all of your suffering is because of your sin. He's merely saying you're dealing with a category of suffering here that is from God to help you think rightly about it. Look at the prophets. 
by looking at the prophets, you recognize that if God could see fit in his providence to have them go through suffering for their sanctification, certainly it wouldn't be strange that he would have you go through suffering for your sanctification too. If God would direct the prophets who were godly men speaking forward his word, if they had to go through difficulty to sanctify their own souls and to validate their message, certainly it shouldn't be strange that we experience it. When you start to see your connection in the prophets, that suffering is bearing the same yoke the prophets bore, you realize that the trial you're going through is actually medicine for your soul. It confirms your faith. Persecution becomes confirmation. Difficulty and mourning becomes medicine. As I said, if it was appropriate for God in his sovereignty and providence to allow the prophets to be persecuted, certainly it's acceptable for you to pass through the same fire. So take the prophets. How do you apply that command? Take the prophets? Let's think about the prophets and their suffering. You know the prophets suffered. But do you really have your mind around the extent to which they suffered? Elijah, for example. First prophet that comes to mind. Opposed Ahab. Sentenced to death. Had to go hide in caves and in in valleys and in fields dodging. He had a, a death Sentence on his head, there was a reward for his capture and his execution. He told people there would be a drought because they kept worshiping the rain god. <laughs> this, is, this is irony. He had to be fed by ravens until the creek that he was drinking from ran dry. That was Elijah. When he did come out of hiding, the fire came down from heaven and it showed that God is a true God. The, the prophets of Baal were, were destroyed and the idol of Baal was consumed by fire and God was obviously the true God. The people didn't repent. They turned against Elijah and persecuted him and he had to flee the country. Do you remember Micaiah? The end of First Kings, he opposed King Ahab. And said, you need to get right with the Lord or you're going down, Ahab. And he was struck in the face by a false prophet, punched him publicly. King Ahab held him hostage, threw him in jail. And said, I'm going to leave you in jail and and you tell your God, if I don't come back from my battle alive, you're never going to get out of jail. He was taken hostage. (laughs) Put yourself in Micaiah's shoes. I mean, you know God does not negotiate with terrorists. (laughs) That's Micaiah's lot in life. I don't even know what happens to him. He could still be in jail for all we know. (laughs) Isaiah uniformly rejected throughout his life. Preached the message over and over again, never really received. He put his hope in godly King Uzziah. Uzziah then turned to sin at the end of his life, got struck with leprosy and died. Ultimately, Isaiah's life ended by being martyred and sawed in two. Uriah, who prophesied during Jeremiah's lifetime, he opposed King Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was bringing idols into the temple Prophet Uriah comes and says, uh, don't bring idols into the temple. This is a pretty low bar of sanctification here. Jehoiakim sentences him to death. Uriah runs away, flees to Egypt. Jehoiakim, this is told in Second Chronicles, sends bounty hunters after him in Egypt, find him in Egypt, drag him back to Jerusalem, put him to death by the sword and throw his body in an unmarked grave. Jeremiah, I mean, no prophet suffered more than Jeremiah. He's called the weeping prophet. He was mocked by the Israelites whom he came to save. His message was never believed. He was ridiculed. And he kept saying the same thing, that there's going to be drought because you keep worshiping the rain god. Repent and trust that God is, is loving you and repent and trust that God has a plan for Israel. And they rejected that message. In fact, the king wanted him drowned and so he threw him in the cistern, which had no water in it because of the droughts. There's that irony again. <laughs> Jeremiah didn't think it was funny. He's stuck in the bottom of a cistern. Where he's going to starve to death until somebody rescues him and feeds him 
crusty bread until he's finally exiled and has to flee from Jerusalem. He comes back a few years later only to find it destroyed. He spent his life with that kind of persecution, his life with that kind of suffering. And remember, Jeremiah didn't sign up to be a prophet either. He didn't apply for the job. In fact, God said, you're going to be a prophet. And Jeremiah said, if you hire me, I fire me. I quit. And God said, you can't quit. I made you. And so Jeremiah spends his life preaching a message that he didn't want to preach and suffering because of it. One of my favorite verses in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 20. Verse 9, Jeremiah says, if I make a covenant with myself that I will no longer speak forward the word of the Lord, it doesn't work <laughs> because his word becomes a fire in my bones and I cannot hold it in. Jeremiah recognizes the more he speaks about God, the more suffering he gets. So he says, okay, I won't talk anymore, but I can't even do that because it compels me. The truth compels me. Ezekiel spent his life mocked and rejected and ridiculed. Ezekiel had it hard because God told Ezekiel, you're going to be, I'm going to treat you, this is God talking to Ezekiel, I'm going to treat you, Ezekiel, in such a way that will cause you to be mocked so that the Israelites have a living picture of what's going to happen to them when the other nations mock them. So here's Ezekiel, who's now suffering throughout his life because, directly because of the Lord, so that other people see what being humiliated looks like. Remember, God tells Ezekiel, you're going to cook your food on human waste. Take human waste, human excrement, light it on the fire and bake your bread on that. And that's how you're going to eat so people see how debased their own sin is. And Ezekiel says, okay, I'm out. <laughs> I'm done. And God says, okay, as an accommodation, you can use cow dung. That's Ezekiel's life. Tied up in a debased way in front of a model city of, of Jerusalem to demonstrate to the Israelites what will happen to them when they get conquered. Here's Ezekiel 5, verse 14. Moreover, God says, I will make you a desolation and an object of reproach among the nations. All around you and in the sight of all who pass by, you will be a reproach and a taunt, a warning and a horror. I, Yahweh, have spoken. In other words, Ezekiel, you're going to be mocked and ridiculed, a warning and a horror, so, that the, other, so the Israelites see how awful it is to be mocked by people because it's going to happen to them. Zechariah, stoned to death in the temple. Hanani, the prophet in 2 Chronicles 16, who confronted godly King Asa. Asa didn't take it well, threw him in prison. Daniel found himself on death row several times, the most infamous of which he was cast into the lion's den. Hosea, I mean, how do you even begin to understand the suffering of Hosea? God tells Hosea, marry a harlot as just this picture to the Israelites of what it's like to be married to someone who is unfaithful, which is how God feels about being married to Israel. So Hosea does, names his kid, you know, not mine and not loved. Then his wife sells herself back into sexual slavery. Hosea has to go ransom her out. He doesn't have enough money to buy his wife out of slavery, out of prostitution. He has to sell all he has, including the shirt off his back, so to speak, as a picture to the Israelites of what their sin is like. That's Hosea's suffering. Amos who prophesied in one of Israel's rare periods of prosperity and wealth, he told them, stop worshiping the cow gods <laughs> and God will avenge his glory. For his reward, if you remember Amos, the priests conspired against him. He was betrayed by priests who lied about him to the king and got himself exiled. Jonah, I mean, where do you even start with Jonah? He had a life of suffering. The Israelites rejected him because he brought the good news to the 
Assyrians, who were their enemies. He didn't want to live with the Assyrians. He didn't, I mean, they were his enemies. He didn't want to live there. He gets belched out by the whale. And then he goes, ends up on the hill watching all the Israelites, watching all the Ninevites repent. And he says, I knew you would do this, God. I knew you would forgive them. Where he was believed, where Jonah was believed, he didn't want to live. And where he lived, nobody believed him. That's the prophets. Have that list in your mind so that when you're suffering in your life, you recognize nothing is happening to you that is unusual for godly people. It's normal for godly people to go through suffering that is not even their fault. It's just what it means to be a follower of God. So first, partner with the prophet. Second, focus on the Father. Focus on the Father. Get your eyes off of yourself, onto the prophets first, and then onto what God is doing. So that you can see at the end of verse 11, the purpose of the Lord, that he is compassionate and merciful. Now, James uses an interesting example here. He says in verse 11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. So you're supposed to consider Job here as your second example. And Job certainly had his eyes on the Father. This is why Job is used as the example here. He stands out. His suffering is more extreme than any of the prophets we just mentioned. And his focus on the Father is more devoted and more intentional than any of the prophets we just mentioned. So he stands out as kind of the example par excellence of what James is trying to communicate here. You remember the story of Job. Job 1 verse 1 says that Job is a righteous and blameless man. He feared God and turned away from evil. So we often have this category distinction in our mind, and I don't think this will be a helpful distinction ultimately, but we often have it in our mind between suffering that you deserve and suffering that you don't deserve. Like suffering that's because of something wrong you did and something that you didn't do anything wrong is just happening to you. That second category I'm going to call innocent suffering. Again, ultimately, I don't think it's going to be a helpful distinction for very long, but for the sake of argument, let's embrace that distinction and say some suffering happens to you because you deserve it and some happens to you as an innocent bystander. Job, certainly, if you're going to have that distinction, certainly suffered as an innocent bystander. That's the point of the first two books, verses of Job chapter 1. He was innocent. He was blameless. He was upright. He was righteous. He loved God. He feared God. And he turned away from sin and evil. And yet look at all the suffering he went through. So why did Job suffer? Whose fault was that? And our minds often go like, it's the devil's fault. But when you read Job 1 more closely, you realize it was not the devil's fault. Who brought up Job first, God or the devil? God. All of the angels were presenting themselves before God, including the devil, because the devil had to go before God because God called for him. That lets you know the direction of the flow chart there. <laughs> and God speaks to the devil and says, devil, have you considered Job? The devil's response, remember, is, oh, of course he worships you because he's rich. And this is interesting in the context of James 5, where James 5 begins with the woe now to the, the rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver are corroded. I mean, James 5 begins with a rebuke towards the rich. Obviously, he's not saying it's sinful to be rich. He's saying that wealth lends itself to certain kinds of sin very easily. And that kind of sin involves the ex exploitation of other Christians. But now it's interesting that James is using example of Job, a very wealthy person, as a positive example. The devil says, of course he worships you. He's loaded. Let me take his stuff from him. God says, go for it. Take it away. He'll still worship me. 
Now, Job loses everything. He loses all of his livestock, stolen, all of his crops, burned, all of his family, killed, the barn collapses, wind rises up, his ten children are dead, his servants and slaves killed, kidnapped, missing. He loses everything and still worships God. And the devil says, well, of course he is because he's healthy. Let me take his health. And God says, take his health. His health is taken away and he still worships God. And he says, remember his wife comes and says, why don't you just curse God and die? That was his wife's encouragement to him during this time. <laughs> You're still holding on to your integrity, integrity? Curse God and die. And I have a little bit of sympathy for her. She also has 10 freshly marked graves in the ground there. And Job's response to her, shall we receive good from God and not also evil? He recognized this is God at work. Now Job had not read the book of Job. He didn't know the devil was involved. He didn't know. How could he? he? There's no way he could know. But the point that the author of Job makes is that Job did not sin with his lips in saying that we should receive evil from God. Job did not blame the devil. And that becomes our example. Our example when we go through suffering is not to blame other people. He doesn't blame the Sabaeans who stole everything from him. He knows exactly who is sovereign over this. It is God. And Job goes directly to God. The rest of the book is spent about Job and his relationship with God. Nothing about the Sabaeans. Nothing about the devil. They exit stage left and never to be seen again. It's all about his relationship with God. His focus is intentionally fixed on the Father. He says, for example, Job 1 verse 21, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I'm going to return. Yahweh gives, Yahweh takes away, blessed be the name of Yahweh. And the narrator again, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. He says, God gives and God takes away. Even through sinful means here because it was, it was, he was robbed. In knowing that God is sovereign, the author says, you're not charging God with wrong. That becomes the example. You're going through suffering? Understand that God is at work. He's at work sanctifying you. He's at work showing the importance and the preciousness of your faith to the world. And so for this to make any sense at all, I mean, look at the middle of verse 11. You've seen the purpose of the Lord, that the Lord is compassionate and merciful. In Job's trial, how do you see that the Lord is compassionate and merciful when Job loses everything, including his children? You have to ask yourself this question. Is everything you have in the world more valuable than your relationship with God? And if you can answer no to that question. My relationship with God is more valuable than everything else in the world. Then you see how suffering and trials put on the Lord's compassion and mercy on display. I mean, if the devil thinks Job only worships God because of his wealth, certainly the world would think you only worship God because of your wealth. And so being able to worship God through suffering and trials demonstrates the Lord's compassion and mercy on you. Job understood the nature of sacrifices he understood the need for forgiveness of sins, and that becomes on display through his own suffering. It seems like Job complains to God sometimes. He asks for his own death in chapter 3. 
And that doesn't become a model for us. We don't use that as a license to complain to God because remember, what Job's suffering is, what Job is going through suffering-wise is so outside of what we're going to experience. It's beyond the human norm. It's beyond the forecast. (laughs) Our example from him is that he went to God because he knew God was sovereign. He was steadfast, never wavering in his faith for the Lord. Reminds me of Naomi, who lost her own children. She comes back to Israel and says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. You might say, oh, she shouldn't be saying God has dealt bitterly with me. Well, God did. At least Naomi knew it was God. That's James's point here. You want to be steadfast in your trials? You want to persevere through your, your difficulty and your suffering and your loss? Recognize that it is God who is sovereign over it. God is the one who is at work, not the devil. God is the one who is at work, not the world. God is the one who is at work to display the preciousness of your faith through your suffering to the world, to display his own compassion and his own mercy to you through forgiving you of your sins to the world. That's the basic truth. Thirdly, partner with the prophets, focus on the Father. Thirdly, persevere with patience persevere with patience. This is the key phrase here, not just in these two verses, although it is here uh, in verse 10, example of suffering and patience, and in verse 11, the steadfastness of Job. But it's earlier as well, verse 7, be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. You also, verse 8, be established your hearts. You're supposed to know that God is at the, the door. So as an example of your patience in verse 10, take the prophets. The key phrase here is patience. It's not just that the prophets suffered. It's not just that Job suffered. It's that they were patient as they endured the suffering to figure out what God was doing. They had a long-term view of what was going on. This is important for you to remember because we often get frustrated with with God that, you know, we feel like we've been suffering for five years and we don't know what God is doing. Five years and I don't know why he's making me go through this. I've been praying for five years for him to reveal to me what he's doing and he hasn't. So I, I don't know if I can take it anymore. We have that kind of attitude so easily. Ten years. Twenty years I've been dealing with this. It's not, not right. Consider the prophets. Consider their lives. Habakkuk. For, I'm going to go through the minor prophets here just so you know where we're headed. <laughs> Habakkuk spends his life prophesying that Assyria is going to go down from Babylon. Assyria is the big kid on the block. They're the big empire. Uh, Habakkuk spends his life saying Babylon is going to get you and tear you down. You know what? Babylon barely existed when Habakkuk was a prophet. He died before Babylon conquered Assyria. He never got to see his prophecy fulfilled. In fact, the main question in the book of Habakkuk is Habakkuk's asking the Lord, why is it taking you so long? <laughs> I've been telling Assyria that Babylon's going to conquer him for a long time and I don't see Babylon anywhere. Joel prophesied about the day of the Lord thousands of years before it would come. He told people that destruction would take place that would cause them to believe in Yahweh. Joel went to his grave in faith as Hebrews 11 says, not having received what was promised. Obadiah, similarly, he spent his life warning Edom as well as Israel that the day of the Lord was coming. He never saw it. My favorite verse from Obadiah, quote, the day of Yahweh is near upon all the nations and the house of Jacob will be a fire and consume them. Obadiah spends his life telling them there is a day coming where God will cause a fire to fall on Jerusalem that will consume the nations. And he never saw it. 
Zephaniah. And by the way, he said, Obadiah says the day of Yahweh is near. That's the same phrase used in James 5. The day of the Lord is near. The judge is at the door. And we say, where's the promise of his coming? You know, it's, it's near. It's been 2,000 years. Come on. How can you say the coming of the Lord is near? It's been thousands of years. Yeah, ask that question to Obadiah, who existed centuries before Christ. Zephaniah prophesied during godly King Josiah's reign. He too had a message of patience. He said that God was going to come and judge the earth. And he said the nations would be converted to God through what God does in Israel. Never happened in Zephaniah's lifetime. Micah watched Israel fall, watched them go into captivity. And he prophesied that even though they fall, they will rise up again when Yahweh comes and visits them. Micah had a message of peace. He said swords will be beaten into plowshares. Swords won't have a purpose anymore when God comes. Micah never saw that. Zechariah spends his life preaching that Israel would be invaded. And then he says when they get invaded, he's not even talking about their exile. He's talking about the second coming, the battle of Armageddon. He says when it happens, God will return to Jerusalem. The nations of the earth will turn and look at him. Then Israel will look at him who they pierced, his hands and his feet whom they pierced. And at that moment, Israel will be saved. This is, he's not just prophesying the first coming of Christ. He's going all the way to the second coming because he speaks of the crucifixion in the past tense. You want to talk about patience and suffering. Haggai prophesies Israel where they're rebuilding their temple. Their massive temple was destroyed. They rebuild this smaller temple. They're weeping about it, and Haggai tells them, hey, I know you guys like your temple. You're a little bit sad about who it's small, how small it is, but let me tell you this. God is going to come, and he's going to shake the earth and destroy your new temple, so don't get attached. <laughs> That's a verse that's quoted at the end of Hebrews 12 as being in the last days. Malachi had perhaps the toughest job. The kids of those who built the temple, Malachi is prophesying, prophesying to them. They loved the temple. It was the focus of their religion, and Malachi tells them, <laughs> That temple is not the key to the kingdom. Sorry. Your parents worked hard on it and everything, but there's going to be a better temple that's coming. How can they hold on with such patience through such persecution for so long? Well, it comes to the fourth point. Persevere with patience, number three. Fourthly, have confidence in Christmas. That's how I'm going to say it. Have confidence in Christmas. What fueled their long-term view of their suffering? They all had confidence in the Lord's coming. This is James 5, 7 and 8. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. Verse 8, the day of the Lord is at hand. The judge is at the door. They all were willing to persevere because of the promise of the Savior coming. All right, so earlier I said the category distinction between suffering that's innocent and suffering that's deserved doesn't really hold up very well. And let me show you why it doesn't to take us into Christmas here. Here's my question. Is there such a thing as innocent suffering? Is there such a thing as somebody who suffers in this life more than they deserve? You have to ask yourself that question. Do you have a category in your mind for somebody in this world who suffers more than they deserve? Is there such a thing as innocent suffering? And I think if you're a Christian, you have to answer this question this way. You have to say, yes, there is. One time, one person. That's it. Jesus is the only one 
who was ever truly innocent. So he's the only one who ever suffered more than he deserved. Any other human suffering is always going to be less than we deserve. If we are sinners, our sin condemns us, we deserve judgment from God, any suffering we experience in this life is less than our sins deserve. You have to believe that. Otherwise, this doesn't make any sense. I'm not saying that your suffering is a result of your own sin directly, like, you know, you're a robber, you go to jail, but it is all, even when you're suffering innocently, like Job was, your suffering is still less than your sin deserves. So in that sense, there really is no innocent suffering in this world other than to Christ. If you believe that, and you can work backwards through this list. You can persevere with patience. You can focus on the Father because you're partnering with the prophets. What fueled their perseverance through their suffering? It was the promise of Christmas. Jeremiah said, Jeremiah 31, verse 31, that he could suffer because he was looking forward to the new covenant when God would come to forgive his people of their sins. Jeremiah 31, 31. Isaiah 53, verse 5. Isaiah said he could suffer because he was looking forward to the Savior who would come who would be his substitute. He would be stricken for his sins. Daniel could suffer. Daniel could fling his window open knowing it could get him martyred as he prayed towards Jerusalem. He could do that because he says, Daniel 12, verse 12, blessed is he that, that is steadfast until the Savior comes. Hosea could endure his suffering because he knew God would send the Savior from Egypt. Micah, he could endure his suffering because he said the Savior would be born in Bethlehem. Prophet Nathan, he could suffer because he knew the Savior would be David's son and David's Lord. Zechariah could suffer because he, he said, not only will they look upon the hands and feet of whom they pierced, that person would come to Jerusalem on a donkey, be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, and then bring salvation to the nations. Malachi, he could preach against the materialism of the world and try to get people to take their eyes on into the future. Because he said the Savior would come and give people new hearts, turn the hearts of children back to their fathers, unite families through faith. Again, Isaiah, the Savior will be everlasting Father, Counselor, Prince of Peace, Mighty God. Mount Micah 4 verse 3, the Savior will bring peace to the earth by being born, Micah 5 verse 3, in Bethlehem. Even Job understood this. So Job had his three worthless friends that came. He had his wife who said, curse God and die, and his three friends who said, you probably deserve this anyway, Job. <laughs> then he had Elihu, the godly friend. And Elihu comes and puts his arm around Job and says, listen, you know what you need, Job? And this is... I love this verse. It's Job 33, I think verse 23. Job, what you need is a mediator. You need a mediator between you and God. What perceptive wisdom right there. Job, what you need is somebody who's a person who can talk to God on your behalf and somebody who comes from God who can talk to you on his behalf. That's what you need because you, you're just talking right past God and he's talking fast to you. Now, of course, all that's going to change by the end of Job, if you remember. God stops speaking past Job at the end of the book. Let's just put it that way. Job 9, verse 33, Job understood this. He says, oh, if only there was an arbiter between us who might lay his hands on both of us. Let him take his rod away from me and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him for I'm not able to do so in myself. Do you get what Job is saying? I wish there was a mediator, an arbiter to be between me and God who could put his arm around me and he could tell me what God is doing. And then I would no longer be afraid of God if there was the mediator, the arbiter between us. Job could patiently persevere in his suffering because he knew the promise of the Redeemer. 
He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. In the end, he will stand on the earth. In my flesh, it will be destroyed. I know with my eyes, I will see God because his Redeemer lives. Do you see how all of the prophets that are suffering could do so because they put the focus on Christ who would suffer innocently in their place? Habakkuk 3, verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, there be no fruit on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock is cut off from the fold, and there are no herds in the stalls. So to bring that up to speed there, Habakkuk says, if I wake up one morning and my crops are burned and dead, I go to the barn, all the animals are dead. (laughs) There's nothing. Yet I will rejoice in Yahweh. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That brings you back to that same question. Habakkuk says, how long, God? Why are you taking so long? And he ends his book by saying, listen, everything in my life could burn, but the promise of the Savior is more precious to me than all of that. If you believe that, then you recognize that your suffering reveals to the world the Lord's purpose is the language in James 5.11, the purpose of the Lord, that he is compassionate and merciful. A non-Christian hears this and thinks, this is insane. Job had 10 of his kids die. He lost everything. Habakkuk is, is ridiculed and God's promise never is fulfilled in his life, on and on and on. How can somebody say that, that God does that to show his compassion? And a Christian says, God does that to show his compassion by showing the world how precious Jesus Christ is. He's God's compassion in human flesh. We sang a song earlier today, Come O Come Emmanuel, one of my favorite Christmas songs. It has kind of a dreary sound to it, but that's intentional. It's supposed to sound dreary because think of the words. Come O Come Emmanuel and ransom captive Israel who mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. Israel, thousands of years waiting, in lonely exile, held captive. They need to be ransomed. I mean, that's sad. You know what the next word of the song is? What is it? Rejoice. What? Rejoice? I'm longing in lonely exile. I'm held captive. But I will rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice. This is the promise to Christians. Though our heartache is real, though suffering is true and profound, the Savior is true and the Savior is adequate and the Savior is sufficient to heal your heartache by forgiving you of your sins and putting your focus on Him and His second coming. Lord, we're grateful that your compassion and your mercy is seen in the person of Jesus Christ. We're thankful that you even lead us through the valley of the shadow of death. You lead us through suffering You lead us through trials and difficulties as you led the prophets to reveal your kindness and your compassion towards us. We do treasure you above the things of this world. Some of us say that now in times of prosperity. Others say it now in times of suffering. But it's true in all of our hearts. We treasure you above all else. We give you thanks for Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. 
We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.